Section 40 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 64 The Eastern Question Again, Part 1. A change soon came over the spirit of the administration. It began to be seen more and more clearly that Mr. Disraeli had not come into office merely to consider the claims of agricultural tenants and to pass measures for the pulling down of what Mr. Cross, the Home Secretary, called rookeries in the back slums of great cities. The Prime Minister was well known to cherish loftier ambitions. He was not supposed to have any warm personal interest in prosaic measures of domestic legislation. If a great reform bill were brought forward, he could fight against it first, and adopt it, and enlarge it afterwards. If any question of picturesque theology were under discussion, he was the man to sustain religion with epigram, and array himself on the side of the angels in panoply of paradox. But his inclinations were all for the broader and more brilliant fields of foreign politics. The poetic young notary in Richter's story was found with his eyes among the stars and his soul in the blue ether. Mr. Disraeli's eyes were among the stars of imperialist ambition. His soul was in the blue ether of high policy. Since his early years he had not travelled. He had hardly left England even for a few days. He knew personally next to nothing of any foreign country. Perhaps for this very reason foreign affairs had all the more magical fascination for him. The prosaic dullness of Downing Street may have sent his fancy straying over the regions of Alexander's conquests. The shortness of the daily walks between the Treasury and the House of Commons may have filled him with dreams of far-extended frontiers and a new empire of the East. The marked contrast between the political aptitudes and tastes of Mr. Disraeli and Mr. Gladstone came in to influence still further the difference between the policy of the new government and that of its predecessor. Mr. Gladstone delighted in the actual work and business of administration. As Dr. Johnson could grapple with whole libraries, so Mr. Gladstone could grapple with whole budgets. He could assimilate, almost in a moment, vast masses of figures which other men would have found bewildering even to look at. He could get into his mind, almost in a flash, all the details of the most intricate piece of legislation. During the long, involved, and complicated discussions of the Irish Church Bill and the Irish Land Bill, he had conducted the controversy chiefly himself, and argued the legal details of perplexed clauses with lawyers like Cairns and Ball and Butt. He could indeed do anything but rest. Now Mr. Disraeli had neither taste nor aptitude for the details of administration. He could not keep his mind to the dry details of a bill. He could not construct a complicated measure, nor could he even argue it clause by clause when other men had constructed it for him and explained it to him. He enjoyed administration on a large scale. He loved political debate. He liked to make a great speech. But when he was not engaged in his favorite work, he preferred to be doing nothing. 
it was natural therefore that mr gladstone's administration should be one of practical work that it should introduce bills to deal with perplexed and complicated grievances that it should take care to keep the finances of the country in good condition mr disraeli had no personal interest in such things he loved to feed his mind on gorgeous imperial fancies it pleased him to think that england was what he would persist in calling her an asiatic power and that he was administering the affairs of a great oriental empire he was fond of legislation on a vague and liberal scale legislation which gave opportunity for swelling praise and exalted rhetoric it was not without justice that his opponents constantly insisted that he was not an englishman but a foreigner a descendant of an oriental race there was indeed something singularly narrow and ungenerous in the constant taunts thrown out against mr disraeli on the score of his jewish ancestry every one who was at all within the limits of the actual political world knew that these taunts came from mr disraeli's political supporters as well as from his political opponents every discontented conservative was ready to whisper something about his chief's jewish descent but although there was an inexcusable want of generosity in thus making mr disraeli's extraction and ancestral faith a source of objection it must be owned that as a matter of historical fact his foreign extraction has had a very distinct influence on his political tendencies and his ministerial career mr disraeli had never until now had an opportunity of showing what his own style of statesmanship would be he had always been in office only but not in power now he had for the first time a strong majority behind him he could do as he liked he had the full confidence of the sovereign his party was now wholly devoted to him they could not but know that it was he whose patience and sagacity had kept them together and had organized victory for them they began to regard him as infallible a great many on the other side admired him as much as they disliked his policy and believed in his profound sagacity as devoutly as any of his most humble followers he had come to occupy in the eyes of englishmen of all parties something of the position once accorded to napoleon the third by the public opinion of europe even those who detested still feared men believed in his power none the less because they had no faith in his policy that mr disraeli could not be mistaken in anything began to be the right sort of thing to say he was therefore now in a position to indulge freely in his own personal predilections with regard to the way of governing england in the house of commons he had no longer any rival to dread in debate mr gladstone had withdrawn from the active business of politics mr bright was not strong enough in physical health to care much for controversy there was no one else who could by any possibility be regarded as a proper adversary for mr disraeli the new prime minister therefore had everything his own way he soon showed what sort of statesmanship he liked best he soon turned away from the dusty and plodding paths of domestic legislation he ceased even to pretend to have any interest in such commonplace and homely work he showed 
that he was resolved to play on a vaster stage and to seek the applauses of a more cosmopolitan audience napoleon invited talma to erfurt that he might play to a pitful of kings mr disraeli was evidently determined to play to an audience of kings and emperors in politics as in art the weaknesses of the master of a school are most clearly seen in the performances of his imitators and admirers mr disraeli's admirers began to manifest his tendencies more emphatically than he allowed himself to do at all public meetings and dinners where conservative orators declaimed there was much talk about imperial instincts imperial missions and destinies and so forth a distinguished member of mr disraeli's cabinet proclaimed that since the conservatives came into office there had been something stirring in the very air which spoke of imperial enterprise the elizabethan days were to be restored it was proudly declared england was to resume her high place among the nations she was to make her influence felt all over the world but more especially on the european continent the cabinets and chancelleries of europe were to learn that nothing was to be done any more without the authority of england a spirited foreign policy was to be inaugurated a new era was to begin enthusiastic conservatives seemed almost literally to swell with pride when they talked of the things to be done under the administration of mr disraeli the long ignoble reign of peace and non-intervention was at an end every man who did not proclaim that british influence was to reign paramount over europe and asia was anti-english was cosmopolitan was a member of the peace society was a devotee of cobden a defender of the alabama treaty a disciple of non-intervention and generally speaking a disgrace to his country and a traitor to his sovereign thoughtful men who were not in any sense political partisans men who were not engaged in politics on either side began to shake their heads at these new political manifestations there was an ominous self-consciousness about them empires are not made or are not made great they said by persons who go about proclaiming an imperial mission the statesmen who proved themselves truly imperial did not parade in heroic attitudes beforehand and say in pompous tones behold us we have it for our task to be the makers of empires such utterances were not happy prologues to the swelling act of the imperial theme the greatness of the age of elizabeth is not to be revived by talking of an elizabethan revival such attempts seemed insincere and shallow they resembled some of the aesthetic pretenses and follies of the day the sham medievalism the affectation of the affectations of the queen anne age there was too much posturing about the new statecraft to give comfort to plain and thoughtful minds goethe has said very well of a certain kind of affectation that it is a pleasant and harmless thing to dress up as a turk once in a while when going to a masked ball but that it is an unpardonable waste of time for an honest western to try and make himself believe all day long that he is a turk now england saw a few middle-aged or ancient gentlemen gravely trying to persuade themselves and their friends that they were elizabethan conquerors of new worlds 
heaven-ordained makers of new empires. The ordinary English mind was not imaginative enough for this sort of thing. Sensible and sober men would be certain to get tired of it soon. Perhaps the first indication of the new foreign policy was given by the purchase of the shares which the Khedive of Egypt held in the Suez Canal. English governments had in the first instance opposed the scheme for the construction of the Suez Canal, and English scientific men had endeavoured to prove that the scheme could never be carried out. Now, however, that the canal was open and was a success, some alarmists began to find a danger to England in the fact that it made the approach to India more easy for other European powers as well as for her. The Khedive of Egypt held nearly half the 400,000 original shares in the canal, and the Khedive was going every day faster and faster on the road to ruin. He was on the brink of bankruptcy. He had been living in the true fashion of an Eastern prince, gratifying every expensive whim as it crossed his listless mind, stimulating himself by the invention of new ways of spending money when the old caprices tired him, lavishing on the purchase and the keep of fat women treasures that might have saved millions of his wretched subjects from starvation. His 176,000 shares came into the market, and on November 25, 1875, the world was astonished by the news that the English government had turned stock-jobber and bought them for four million sterling. The idea was not the government's own. The editor of a London evening paper, Mr. Frederick Greenwood, was the man to whom the thought first occurred. He made it known in the first instance, it is believed, to a member of the cabinet, who threw cold water on it. Not discouraged, Mr. Greenwood tried the Prime Minister himself, and Mr. Disraeli was caught by the proposition, and the shares were instantly bought up in the name of the English government. Seldom in our time has any act on the part of a government been received with such general approbation. The London newspapers broke into a chorus of applause. The London clubs were delighted. The air rang with praises of the courage and spirit shown by the ministry if here and there a faint voice was raised to suggest that the purchase was a foolish proceeding, that it was useless, that it was undignified, a shout of offended patriotism drowned the ignoble remonstrance. Some continental newspapers did a good deal to stimulate the feeling that prevailed in England by condemning the act as audacious, arrogant, and ominous of an intention to interfere too actively in foreign affairs this was the very course to stir the feeling of an englishman there was a general sense of satisfaction at the idea that england was again regarded as an arrogant and dominating power men held up their heads grandly and went about pride in their port defiance in their eye nobly overconscious of belonging to a nation which could make her influence felt once more in foreign affairs when parliament met the liberal leaders ventured to make some objection to the purchase and to the mode of completing it. But all wise persons declared that the very attempt only showed how entirely the liberal leaders were out of sympathy with the English people. 
it is true that one member of the cabinet lord darby endeavoured to make as little as possible of the purchase and to represent it as a step taken merely to prevent any foreign influence from preponderating in the management of a canal which was chiefly important for english commerce mr disraeli and some of his colleagues on the other hand spoke in a grand and mysterious way which gave people to understand that the buying of the shares was part of some great scheme of policy destined to make england mistress of the east and to checkmate the designs of a jealous world nothing in particular came of the bargain in the end and the popular enthusiasm soon cooled down the act however is of historical importance as the first of a series of strokes made by the government in foreign policy each of which came in the nature of a surprise to parliament and the country it is probable that mr disraeli counted upon making his government popular by affording to the public at intervals the exciting luxury of a new sensation the public was undoubtedly rather tired of having been so long quiet and prosperous they liked to know that their government was doing something there were fashions in politics as in literature and in dress sensationalism was now decidedly the mode in the political world mr disraeli led the fashion and stimulated the public taste the government tried to establish a south african confederation and sent out mr froude the romantic historian to act as the representative of their policy the prince of wales was sent on a tour of india a very reasonable and proper thing in itself but which the government endeavoured to surround with all the radiance of a new avatar the prince was taken out to india and introduced to all the princes and other persons whom officialism thought it convenient for him to meet he got no nearer to the knowledge of the real feelings of any of the indian population than if he had remained at marlborough house the government meanwhile made some changes in the relations of the india office here to the viceroy in calcutta which gave much greater power into the hands of the secretary for india one immediate result of this was the retirement of lord northbrook a prudent and able man before the term of his administration had actually arrived mr disraeli gave the country another little surprise he appointed lord lytton viceroy of india lord lytton has been previously known chiefly as the writer of pretty and sensuous verse and the author of one or two showy and feeble novels in literary capacity he was at least as much inferior to his father as his father was to scott or goethe all that was known of him besides was that he had held several small diplomatic posts without either distinction or discredit the world was certainly a good deal astonished at the appointment of such a man to the most important office under the sovereign an office which had strained the intellectual energies of men like dalhousie and canning and elgin but people were in general willing to believe that mr disraeli knew lord lytton to be possessed of a gift of administration which the world outside had not had any chance of discerning in him not much it was remembered was known of lord mayo's capacity for the task of governing india when he was sent out to calcutta and lord mayo's administration had undoubtedly been successful there was no reason why lord lytton should not turn out a born administrator there was no reason why he should not suddenly prove the possession of unexpected gifts like another cromwell clive or spinola 
There was something, too, which gratified many persons in the appointment. It seemed gracious and kindly of Mr. Disraeli, thus to recognize and exalt the son of his old friend and companion in arms. There was a feeling all over England which wished well to the appointment, and sincerely hoped it might prove a success. End of section 40